Hi, friends. I'm Renee. I'm Adri. And I'm Diana. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Welcome back to the pod, Space Bees. It's been a minute, and I am once again joined by guest hosts, Adrian and Diana, who agreed to come on, help Anna with her hiatus, and also talk about the Hugo Awards. That's right. We're still on brand. It's, it's always the Hugo Awards. Hugo season is eternal. So it's going to be really interesting to dig into the finalist lists and the associated drama, because there is always discourse around the Hugo Awards. It never fails. Something happens. And this year is no exception. But first, we're going to talk about our one good thing. Adri, would you like to go first? I would. As those who follow me on Twitter might know, I have recently had an addition to my family. So I have adopted a dog. Her name is Zagreus, aka Zag, the lady dogling. I kind I had a, a like a gender appropriate backup name, but I've kind of been talking to some other friends about having a Hades themed dog and decided that as dogs don't actually have gender identities, then why not just name it after a Greek god? Yeah, that's my good thing. We've been uh, we've been settling in. Uh, she has found many comfortable places to go to sleep because she's part greyhound and that's what they do. But yeah, my house is full of doggy goodness again, which is very, very exciting. It is exciting. Dogs are great. Now that I'm thinking about it, really, we should have had Adri go last because I think that she probably has the best good thing. Well, I can I can keep talking about her afterwards if you want, like after every single drama thing we can bring up. I could be like, oh, but hey, remember that I have this dog now? Dogs are the best. Okay, Diana, what's your one good thing? It will happen by the time this podcast gets posted, but my mom, who's currently in Ontario, uh, is getting her first AstraZeneca shot this week. Ontario is a massive shit show right now in regards to the COVID outbreak because Doug Ford is fucking incompetent and never should have been premier. And so I've been really worried about her because of that. So I'm not as worried about my family in Nova Scotia because they're like, that province is actually doing what it's supposed to to keep folks safe. I know she won't be fully vaccinated for a while, but just knowing that she has some protection is just a huge relief for me. My one good thing is that I splurged on some Hangul material to help me with the alphabet. I have been struggling with learning the Korean alphabet for several months. I started doing a regular study in December of last year, and I got through the consonants okay, and then I hit the vowels, and it's just like there's a wall in front of me with the vowels. They look so similar. It's a little bit different than the consonants, which sometimes look similar depending on if they're like aspirated, have more wind, but the vowels are different than that. And it's been really frustrating. And for some reason, my brain is just not taking to the vowels like I took to the consonants. So I ordered um, this book called Hangul Master from TalkToMeInKorean.com. Like it's a whole workbook. It has little audio. It has places for you to like copy the vowels as you say them. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it helps me out a lot. It's like really made me happy to like have extra support just to study because my study so far has been mostly with free resources. It feels really nice to have structured learning, which apparently I need. It's an adventure. It's fine. I'm actually having fun, which is the point. Have fun with it. And so that's my one good thing. Okay, Space Bees, please let us know what your one good thing is. I would like to hear your good things because given the state of the world, hearing people's good things makes me happy. Please indulge us and let us know what's good that's been happening to you. Next up, we're going to talk about the media that we've been consuming. Adri, would you like to go first? My reading has been sort of valiantly battling on. Uh, like many people, I'm really not getting the amount of reading that I want to done at the moment. 
I'm currently doing a sort of mini project in which I read all the Octavia Butler that I have not previously read, which at the start of the year was Fledgling and the Pattern Master Quadrilogy and some of the short fiction. Um, I read Fledgling in January and I've just finished off Wild Seed, which is the chronological first in the Pattern Master sequence, but it's not the first book that was written. And I was specifically recommended by someone randomly on Twitter that like, oh, you should read them in the chronological order, because otherwise this book is spoiled by what came after, even though it was written as a prequel. So it was kind of written with the expectation that people at the time would know what had happened in future books. And it kind of has that vibe about it. That there's a lot of really intriguing stuff. The Pattern Master books are it's humans evolving beyond human capacity and this particular book is following two immortal beings and one of them can sort of body hop at the expense of killing people and he's sort of developing his preferred race of humans and breeding all these kind of psychic tendencies into them there's a lot of thematic stuff that i think is going to come out more in future books which I am very eager to get to. I enjoyed the experience. I'm reserving my full judgment until I can see where like, where the pattern is going in the Pattern Master sequence, if you will. And then the other thing I've been doing, which is directly related to the Hugo Ballot, is I have suddenly got really, really into Blazeball, which for those who don't know, is this sort of online baseball simulator that's been going for well since last year where you have virtual baseball games but they're all happening with weird procedurally generated characters and there's also this big sort of weird horror welcome to night vale-esque stuff going on with hell mouths and alternate realities and peanut gods descending from the sky when i found out about this on tuesday when it turned up on the hugo ballot i was like this seems very weird and i don't understand it and i'm too old for this shit now and i really don't understand how i'm gonna get into this for the purpose of of the best video game hugo and then within 24 hours it's like i'm on the discord i know the strategy of my team the atlantis georgias are now my life because obviously i went for the C team, who are not very good, but we're really trying, you guys. So I've suddenly got very, very invested in this weird baseball thing. And just for context, so as you can tell from my accent, I'm English. We don't really have baseball as a sport here. Like, it's not a thing. You play rounders at school, but otherwise we don't have it. When this first came onto the Hugo ballot, I was talking to my co-editor, Joe Sherry, and I, in passing, was like, yeah, I visited my aunt and uncle in the US, and they took me to see a baseball match, and he was, re- and it was really confusing. And Joe was like, look, the first thing we have to establish is it's not a baseball match, it's a baseball game, and like... The fact that you've just called it a baseball match is maybe an indicator of where you are starting with the concept of baseball. But anyway, I now understand a lot about baseball and its relationship to peanut gods. I think that everyone should join baseball with me. Okay, Diana, what two things have you been into recently? First is I recently drove uh, 10 hours back from my grandparents to where I currently live. And on the way back, I listened to the final book in the Vorkosigan saga, Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold. And I really enjoyed it. So I've been like reading this series on and off for, I want to say like five years And so I finally finished it, and I really loved how this book served as a cap. It feels like on this current cycle in the saga, but also leaves it open. If she wanted to go to the next generation and look at what happens with them, it's there. For me, at least, there's a really interesting discussion about grief, but also healing and moving on and just reconsidering your legacy and what you want to leave behind. And one thing that I found that I really enjoyed about this book is that there's no real big conflict. The biggest conflict in the story is Cordelia trying to move the capital of this colony, Seriar, uh, to a different city because where the capital city currently is, is on a very active tectonic fault line. And she's like, there's a volcano and it's going to blow and it's going to destroy the town and we can just move the capital. So I love this series. I wish the physical books weren't so ugly. If you want a good laugh, I highly recommend looking at the covers for the Vorkoskin books because they are terrible. 
it really is Bane at its best, isn't it? <laughs> I know. But uh, I might honestly just buy them on ebook because the ebooks are not published by Bane and the covers for the ebooks are slightly better. <laughs> And then the other thing that I've been consuming lately is I restarted Dragon Age Origins. So I'm going to blame KJ for this because I had not intended on starting uh, any new games before the Mass Effect remaster came out. And then KJ's like, oh, I spun up a new warden. I'm a city elf. And I'm like, you know what? I miss that game. I haven't romanced Alistair in a hot minute. I spun up a new warden i'm playing an elven mage and i just finished the circle tower the fate is still the fucking worst <laughs> the gameplay is very clunky now because it's 12 years old but also i have a very like i i, I do like this game a lot my media consumed the first thing is a set of online concerts um it was called bang bang con the first instance of Bang Bang Con was last year when BTS did like 24 hours of past concert videos. This year they did it again. They showed the BTS Begins concert from 2015. They showed the fifth muster in Busan. And then they also showed the concert from Sao Paulo in Brazil. I did not stay up for the Sao Paulo concert. I went to bed because it was six in the morning. All they do is you say live stream these concerts over their YouTube channel and you get to experience the concert. Because BTS is a band of the future, if you have an army bomb, which if you don't know what an army bomb is, it's like a little light stick, you can connect it to Weverse, which is their app that you can interact with artists on. If you connect your army bomb to Weverse and watch these concerts, the army bomb works like it would have at the concert. But I think it's just super cool in sci-fi. I love that. You can connect to an app and have your light stick thing react to music from a concert that happened years ago. I found the way that they end concerts to be very, very nice. Like right before the actual last song, they get up and they do all they do all these like heartfelt comments to each other and the audience, and it's just very nice. Switching gears entirely, I'm reading a book which is very notable for me, who has been struggling with reading for a while now. The book is The Some of Us by Heather McGee. The Some of Us is about how racism hurts both black and brown people, but also as the wealth inequality in America gets worse and worse, it also hurts white people. It goes over a lot of stuff that I like know about from my history degree, like redlining, uh, the subprime mortgage crisis, and how that subprime mortgage crisis was like tested on black communities, black and brown communities first. And as wealth inequality continues to spiral out of control, white people are getting caught up in these predatory practices. We can't have nice things because we don't want black and brown people to have nice things. The book shows shows us this in a very concrete way. Heather McGee talks about public swimming pools. In the US, the public pool used to be like a feature in American life. And then they tried to integrate them. And instead of integrating them, cities would turn them into private clubs. And in some in some cases, a lot of cases, they would drain them, fill them, and close them for everybody, including white people. And I don't know. I don't know how the book's going to end. I'm only halfway through. But if you want to learn about like why the U.S. is so fucked up, this is a good book to start with because she cites a lot of really good research and really good books one of the books about the pool thing that that she mentioned what is called Contested Waters. Somebody wrote a whole book about it. Wow, what a great book to end this segment on. Everybody who is listening is like, Renee, why don't you lead with the book and then talk about BTS? That would have made more sense. Yes, it would have. Why didn't I? I don't know. I don't know why I made that choice. Okay, Space Bees, please let us know what you've been reading or playing or watching, even if it's sad. I'm interested in Rex, even though I'm not doing a lot of things, but I, I still want your Rex. I'm still, I'm still on brand. Please send them. Recently, the Hugo Awards finalist list was released by Discon 3. This year, there were 1,200 ballot nominating ballots. That's a little lower than I would like, but it resulted in a pretty solid 
ballot. I'm actually pretty pleased. And we are here to talk about the inevitable discourse that rises from the release of the Hugo finalist every year without fail. It's inevitable. There's going to be discourse with the Hugo. It has started quite well. I mean, not early because it starts when the ballot comes out. But yeah, we've gone quite hard quite soon. I feel like it might just be nearing maybe the end of the pandemic and everyone just has a lot of feelings and it just exploded. But it also could be that certain segments of the fandom are seeing their inevitable irrelevance and are lashing out because of it. My first thing I wanted to say about the Hugos was that I love everybody in this bar. And I feel like I should also congratulate you, Renee, and Lady Business on your... Is it your third nomination? That's a good question. What is time? I think this is fourth. Yeah, because you got Name in 2016, and then 2017 you won, and then you won in 2019. So yeah, but also, Adrian, congratulations to you as well. Thank you. My ultimate plan... Uh, has not come to fruition yet, but I will continue campaigning. What is your ultimate plan? My ultimate plan is to get Adri a fan writing nomination. So everybody knows how great she is. Listen, she's doing great work. No, thank you. I mean, it's a uh, it's an amazing category this year for, for fan writers. So definitely, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that too one day. I'll just rest in the comfort of uh, of two nominations this year, which is uh, kind of bizarre, but amazing beyond my own personal ego uh, and wanting to celebrate it at every possible opportunity and being really excited for Lazy Lady Business. Um, I'm super excited um, in FanCast that we have not just Claire, but also Rachel from Kalanadi on the um, on the ballot this year and representing for BookTube. They're both such good channels and also they do quite different things or at least I look to them for different content when I'm looking at booktube like I think Rachel does amazing in-depth reviews particularly of sort of older works and then Claire's got genre wise and and the kind of new stuff and also that kind of like the fun D&D stuff last year and, and things that ballot's really exciting I'm really excited by the the fan categories in general although as I think we'll get into um, it'll be nice to have a few more nominations on those I'm sort of pleasantly surprised that actually even though I felt like I didn't do a lot of reading last year I have read most of the novel and novella and series categories so it, it sort of feels like in eight months I might be able to maybe finish this that is a a good feeling one thing and I, I should full disclosure. Uh, so I am on the ballot with Conzeal and Fringe this year in best related work. So having having hashtag opinions about best related work feels like I'm getting very personal. But yeah, this category has been the source of the discourse in many quarters. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the particular essay and what bullshit the community has pulled in response to that very excellent essay by Natalie Lers. Because we've got Conzeal and Fringe, uh, we've also got Firecon. I don't know if you guys went to Firecon, but I had the best time. They put on such a such a good show, such a smooth convention experience. It, it had its ups and downs, but in terms of just like the panels and the names they brought in, and also the Ignite Awards were just an absolute joy to watch. So I'm super thrilled to be sharing a ballot with them. Um, I'm less thrilled by the commentary around, well, because, you know, now now we have conventions on best related work and this isn't what the category was was made for and, and the non-fiction is being kept out of best related work or, you know, non-fiction is being kept from from well-deserved wins because things like Archive of Our Own or Jeanette Ng are winning for things that are a record of of what fandom finds important and what is um what we value in our fandom i just i don't know it's because it feels more personal this year but coming up against that and especially coming up against it when it's in relation to former finalists or it's a you know it's sort of almost counting out the really great other finalists that are in this category this year because oh no people are just going to vote for the essay because it's easy to read it's just such a such a bizarre way of of looking at this category 
things deserve to be in here. It's best related work. It's the catch-all category. I'm sorry that your favourites are not winning. There are six things on the ballot in every category every year. So most of the time, your favourite thing doesn't win. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention, which I'm super excited about as a category and super kind of intrigued by, um, as you probably got from my uh, my Blazeball shout out earlier, is the best video game category. Best video game has been put on the ballot as a special award this year. So each year the Worldcon can use their discretion to have a, a special category. There has been a really excellent campaign that that really deserves to have won its argument by now um, that's been spearheaded by ERA to demonstrate why best video games should be on the Hugo ballot on a regular basis. And yeah, I think it, it's great of Discon that, that they've enabled this kind of trial to get over some of the hurdles that people seem to have on this, such as, oh no, we had a best video game category this one time in 2005 and it didn't work. And therefore, how could it possibly work uh, in the late 2010s slash 2021? What could possibly have changed in 15 years? I don't know. Sometimes when you're in certain segments of fandom, maybe the answer to that question is nothing. But for the rest of us, things do in fact change uh, over periods of decades. It's really exciting. I've obviously already wasted too much time on Blazeball. I am mega, mega excited about Hades and also about Spiritfarer. It's a really nice mix of of kind of bigger name stuff and indie games. So hopefully there's kind of a range of accessibility and especially if the con's doing the kind of live streams as well, then even people who can't sort of directly purchase a secondhand PlayStation as I have can still experience those via the via the streams and then pick up some of the smaller games. Era's presentation for having a game award is not just for video games, it's for all games. So the video game award was a nice trial. And I hope that we can use the data to push for a best game. But Eero's proposal is about all games. So board games, card games, and video games. I understand why Discon did it this way with video games. Because people think games now. Often you're thinking of like the big AAA titles. But the proposal, which I hope eventually gets approved, uh, is for like just best games. So this category could become even more diverse and interesting. It's best interactive experience, isn't it? Best game or interactive experience. I think it's really interesting, actually, that Blazeball is on there. That in particular is a game where the game element of that is very, very light touch and limited. And it's actually what a particular fandom has done around that that creates what is Hugo worthy. Someone has coded something and they do have, they have storylines that are clearly being led from the game company. So they're They've done more than just like set up a computer to have some randomly generated names and and let it fly. But it is an interaction between a developer and a fandom that is constantly ongoing. Obviously, as I've said, I've only been in fandom for four days, but so far it's been a really, a really nice experience. I wasn't sure what to expect when I joined the Discord and what I got was people who were super polite, super willing to sort of explain random lore things. You know, so all of the characters, it's about what people kind of headcanon them as and there's there's kind of accepted interpretations for certain characters and then some of them are more nebulous. The best picture on my team, the Atlanta Georgias, is a goldfish encased in a block of ice with arms and legs like that is the accepted Rigby Friedrich I think his name is that is their accepted interpretation but someone else could be like actually no I don't think it's a goldfish I think it's a a clownfish that's encased in ice there's a lot of creativity in the community and it it's so far from what I've seen and obviously these fandoms have facets and they can turn but it's all done in a very sort of a way that's very respectful and collaborative and diverse and um and interested in bringing diversity in a, in a constructive and well-managed way blazeball plug number two one thing that i really like about the video game category was and renee kind of touched on it a little is that it is a mix of big triple a titles and these more indie games especially something like blazeball which because like i remember hearing about it when the pandemics like i feel like the pandemic really made that popular and then you have titles like Hades and you have Spirit Fair. So I don't know. I just I really like that these smaller indie titles are getting their time to shine with this award. 
Blazeball kind of passed me by in the initial pandemic, but Hades and Spiritfarer, for different reasons, felt like 2020 was, was inexplicably quite a good year for them to release in terms of the popularity they got. And they're both amazing games. And the pandemic did not hurt Nintendo with Animal Crossing New Horizons. I literally got Animal Crossing New Horizons, but I haven't played like a proper Animal Crossing game since the GameCube. I was just so thrilled to see this on the ballot, even though, yes, it is a game from like a big company. Nintendo is not small. They do not need help. Animal Crossing like saved lives because you could go, you could hang out with friends. I spent how much time watering Anna's flowers and it made me so happy. I know that a big complaint about the game category is that, oh, how can you like address the the finalists if you don't have these gaming consoles that really drives home the fact of how insular some of the worldcon community can be because literally you can go to twitch and type in the game that you want and there are people playing that game on twitch there are people doing let's plays on youtube I know the I know the Concom plans to put stuff on their YouTube channel so people can find it. Allow me to make a public service announcement. You do not need to buy a gaming console to experience some of these games. There are people on twitch.tv and youtube.com playing them for you and talking about them and you can go watch them. It's like a whole genre of things. The focus on accessibility there. So as long as you have an internet connection, you can watch YouTube. Like these things exist for free. And when you compare that to, we have the Hugo packet for some of the works that end up on the, the literature ballot. And there's a push towards more free to read short fiction, although that tends to annoy the same people who also don't want to see a video game category because how could they possibly play all those video games? Yeah, the idea that the accessibility is a unique problem for video games, it, it's not representative of, of the ways that you can engage in gaming and in, in understanding a game. The other part of the ballot that's newer is the Lodestar Award. Not a Hugo. Lodestar is really new. Our great pal Anna was a huge champion for the Lodestar Worked very, very hard to make it a reality. And now it's a reality and I'm super happy that we have it. Because it's so new and a lot of the adult science fiction and fantasy community can be very condescending toward YA fiction as a marketing category. We're going to run into some of the same problems with this award. Awards like this, when they're brand new, they have to learn from the people who build them from the ground up what they're going to be and i think that we're in that space with the low star right now because it's so young and so the low star ballot was like super fascinating to me because it had like a really a, a mix of things that like i considered like ya and then one thing i thought was middle grade but i guess it's not and then there's like adult stuff that is not ya but maybe markets well to why readers? I think that's part and parcel of the fact that the category is very young. The um, readers for the award are often not young adults. We haven't done like a ton of outreach that I've seen to why communities. Renee is being much nicer than I am because this is kind of leading into my and I feel bad because Adria was just like so positive about so many things and my list is like well, let's get into it. Um, and the Lodestar is a big thing. And so Renee talked a little bit about just like it's a newer category. There's kind of some ambiguity. But here is my problem. A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik should not be on this list. And part of my frustration is, is that yes, there are adult books that have appealed to YA, but there is an award for that. It is called the Alex Award. It is distributed by YELSA, which is the Young Adult Library Services Association, which is part of ALA. But this award is specifically designed to honor adult books that have crossover potential. Looking at the long list for the 2020 awards, A Deadly Education was a nominee. It didn't win, but it was a nominee. It was listed there. And Naomi Novik should also know about the Alex Awards because Spinning Silver got one. For me, it's incredibly frustrating because there was so much amazing YASFF. This is going to be really harsh, I know, but I just, I have a lot of feelings about it and none of it are positive. 
It's a white woman taking up space where she doesn't belong. I don't know why Naomi Novik accepted this nomination. Like, nominees do have the option to refuse a nomination for whatever reason. It Again, it is just so frustrating to me. Like, there's the aspect of the science fiction community and the administrators not doing their due diligence. And I think this was something that came up during the award was there's no real definition for what constitutes why, so there is this ambiguity. But on the other hand, I do think there is a bit of responsibility on the author itself to acknowledge that they're taking up space where they don't belong. It feels like it's there because it's Naomi Novik and the science fiction community, the SFF community loves Naomi Novik, and so they're going to get her on the ballot no matter what. So yeah, that is my Lodestar rant. There are other categories, and not just this year, where there has there have been conversations about, okay, well, when does an individual who is nominated for this award step back and say, you know, well, we're not going to do this this year? And when is that a decision that's that's entirely on them? I mean, it's always a decision that's that's theirs. But when is there a bit more of a, a sort of a moral or an ethical or a, a general reason for them to do that? I've had multiple conversations with people where I'm the one going, oh, well, you know what, if the voters voted for it, it's not great. I, I don't personally love the, that this work is, is on there when maybe it has won several times and other things could have won in a certain category. That's a decision they can make and, and I respect it. For this, because YA, like, it isn't something that the entire Hugo community are entirely on board with. It is something that does get looked down on. There's a lot of discourse that repeats around the fact that particularly women and particularly women of colour authors writing in certain genres are constantly pushing back against the notion that, that their work is YA and having it miscategorized and having to draw that line of like, no, it's not, you know, it doesn't insult me that you're calling my work YA, but it just isn't. And it isn't just because of my identity as an author. Like, there's so much commentary about what gets to be an adult work and how how respect works in that entire context that can be a podcast in itself. But I think Naomi Novik should also know about all of that. And, and taking a nomination because the voters considered you YA when you know full well that your work is not actually YA. Like, does that not feed into some of the the sort of most negative side of that discourse that, oh, okay, because it's because it's a woman who's written a book about a magic school, it must be a YA, but you wouldn't say that about, you know, Patrick Rothfuss or whatever. I read and reviewed uh, A Deadly Education. Uh, it is in the category of books that I would probably call quite tiring, not personally going to pick up the sequel. Uh, which is not the same as saying it was bad, but there was discourse all of its own for this book as well, which is neither here nor there. I've read nothing in this category and therefore have no real opinion. My criticism around the Low Star is mostly that I'm not sure what outreach we're doing to YA communities. I don't know why supporting memberships continue to be so freaking expensive. <laughs> for example... ChaiCon next year, the Chicago WorldCon, has set their supporting memberships at $50. Why is it so high? Set it low and sell more memberships. I, I feel, and I don't know when this is going to happen just because of the way the Hugo business meetings are structured and how entrenched the old guard is, but there does need to be a conversation. I feel, I, I feel like there's kind of been a discussion about this in conjunction with FiaCon where the Hugos is at a crossroad and it can either reform and do things like more outreach to the young adult community and start pulling them into the SFF community and restructuring the supporting membership, or it's going to be more irrelevant. And then it actually will be the community's equivalent to the Golden Globes. <laughs> Ouch! Which is not a compliment. The Golden Globes are trash. I do, I will say for the novellas, I, re I went for my, like, my, my positive thing. For the novellas, I'm really happy with the finalists. Um, although it is a little sad that it is very much the Tor.com category because there are some other publishers that are doing novellas. But I feel like Tor has managed to position itself as the leader in this category. So I kind of hope other publishers start doing more novellas. 
or like more of the smaller publishers that are doing novellas like Tachyon get more of a push just because there's just so there's a lot of good things out there. And it is a little sad to me that this entire category this year is all poor. Hello, novella publishers and authors and people who are fans of novellas from publishers other than tour.com. There's a whole spreadsheet and you can put your novellas in it. It's linked in the show notes. The last thing that I want to talk about, and Adri kind of alluded to this when she was talking about the best related works, the discourse around Natalie Lure's essay, George R.R. R. Martin can fuck off into the sun. For folks who are unaware, last year's Hugo ceremonies was an utter disaster, in large part because George R.R. R. Martin was mad about the Astounding Award being the Astounding Award, and so decided to spend three and a half hours eulogizing dead fascists, disrespecting nominees, uh, giving Bob Silverberg a platform to be gross, making transphobic jokes, and essentially turning the ceremony all about him. I drank a lot of a hard alcohol that day because that was the only way I could get through the ceremony. Natalie Lurz really eloquently captured a lot of what folks were feeling about that particular Hugo ceremony. I will admit, I nominated it for Best Related Work. I thought that it was a very good commentary on the fandom at the time. Unfortunately, a certain uh, gossip rag that likes to style itself as a news source uh, decided to take issue with this essay, and whose editor decided to file a complaint with Discon saying that this essay being on the Hugo ballot violated its code of conduct. And so it's essentially a old white man trying to bully a work that has been nominated, that has been said to have value by the community off the ballot and weaponize the code of conduct. And then you have people who are like both siding this when there really isn't a both sides. This is a work that is on the ballot, whether they like it or not. It accurately talks about issues in our community. And if you're mad at it, it's not the children who are wrong. It's you. I I accept that many people have many fond memories of George R.R. Martin. But I don't see how it's in question that particularly over the last two years, uh, so the ceremony last year, also the Hugo Losers Party in Dublin in 2019, you know, I know this is all a bit inside baseball, but um, he effectively shut half of the, the Hugo Losers out from their own party, which for some reason he gets to run every year and didn't think he needed to book a big enough venue for, and then was very defensive about, well, I can't possibly keep up with all these people who are getting fan category nominations now that there's 18 per magazine and did they really expect me to kick my friends out so that Hugo Losers could come into the Hugo Losers party? That is the legacy that George R. R. Martin is setting himself up for with current fans and not just current fans but current people who are in fact on the Hugo ballot like it or not, they are being recognised even though they're not your friends from 30 to 40 years ago. It must be wonderful to then have so many people who are so extraordinarily concerned about your feeling about the fact that you're ruining your own legacy and people are calling you out for it, that they will just go to bat for you at the the drop of a hat. It's extraordinary bad faith and disingenuous, I think, what's happening. The fact that it is being treated as like, oh, well, everyone should just have known that this was a code of conduct violation and to not treat it like this and to not treat Natalie like this would be us just showing our terrible hypocrisy. When you are just bullying someone who is a finalist over this particular thing, someone with a lot less power than George, who has an eight-figure HBO deal in the pipeline, it's disgusting. It is entirely in keeping with the particular magazine that it's coming from. Yeah. I was explaining this whole thing to Zach. We were musing over the code of conduct thing. And I have written some code of conducts. I've had to enforce some code of conducts. And he made the point, which I thought was fascinating. He said that endeavoring to boot Natalie off wasn't the correct response if it was a COC violation. The correct response if it was a COC violation would be to strip the voting rights from the people who nominated it. 
because they are the ones violating the code of conduct. To fire the Hugo administrators who passed it along because they're the ones violating the code of conduct. Natalie didn't break the code of conduct at all. She was writing commentary outside the convention about something that happened at the convention. She wasn't in the metaphorical con space. She accepted a nomination because the community awarded her that honor. She is not at fault. The people at fault, in quotes here, are the people who put it on their ballot and the Hugo administrators who forwarded it on as a finalist. They would be the ones that would be in trouble here if it was actually a code of conduct violation. And okay, this is, needs to be off the ballot. Okay, sure. If it's going to be off the ballot, then we need to strip all the voting rights from the voters who put it on there and get rid of the entire Hugo committee. That's the only like logical endpoint that I see from this debate. But then that would mean holding holding people who are your buddies to account within the administration. Why would you do that when you can just go after an individual woman? We have a lot of problems talking about power imbalances because obviously like the SFF community itself is like a complete morass of power imbalances. Like I have more power than like rando fan number one because I have Hugo nominations. I have to like keep that in mind when I'm talking. Some like an author who has a publishing deal and an agent and has several books published. They have more power than me. It's just like a rando fan writer who has a few Hugo nominations because you have to consider the context that you're in when you're making accusations or claims of wrongdoing. You have to think about your power in a situation and that takes some nuance. Yeah, I will also note that Annalie Flowerhorn, who wrote in, in sort of the public domain, the element of a standard code of conduct that deals with things like reverse isms or, you know, someone telling someone else to please go away is a code of conduct violation because it hurts that person's feelings. And they literally did a Twitter thread where it was like, okay, well, this is in the code of conduct for this reason. So no, actually telling someone to fuck off into the sun, it can be a code of conduct violation in certain context it doesn't seem to be one here so you know i can clear that up for you as someone who wrote this text of this code of conduct that that is not what they're there for it's not really about enforcing the code of conduct is it it also sucks because i feel like this is also taking away from some of the really fantastic work that's in the best related works category like i think that it's an incredibly strong category this year you have things like Fiacon, you have things like Con Zealand Fringe, you have the Octavia Butler book, uh, you have Bro Wolf. It, it's going to be difficult to figure out how to rank things. Like for me, that's the biggest problem with the Hugos is like, how do I rank things? Because a lot of these categories have so many strong nominees. Yeah, I, I also think it's an amazing category, but I am a little bit biased. No, I'm really proud to be sharing the category with Firecon and with Natalie specifically. Amazing books as well. Some of the things that end up on Best Related Work would, would often not get a lot of attention otherwise. The idea that being a finalist means you're overlooked is weird to me. I would have never heard of the book by Linnell George, which is A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler. I would have never heard of that book without this ballot. That's what these ballots are for. They're like historical documents of what we value at a point in time. I don't know why we seem to want to divorce finalist lists from their social and political context, but award ballots are historical documents. I don't think we're going to see like a sudden wave of cons being nominated for this award. We're in a particular moment in a horrible global pandemic that we're all suffering through together. Cons have had to shift online and we're finding value in connecting. It's like the most science fictional idea you can have, connecting over vast distances using electricity. I don't think we're going to see a wave of cons getting nominated. I think we're in a very specific moment that makes it valuable to honor these things that are doing good work. There are two things here. They did really good work in a really awful, hard context. They're just different, and they have value in their own context. Being a Hugo voter means holding multiple ideas in your head at one time in order to make a decision about where things fall on your ballot. It shouldn't have to be this stressful. If it's stressing you out, maybe it's time to take a step back. That was really well said, Renee. Were there other specific things that you wanted to talk about? Oh, you know, I had some thoughts. This is connected to my supporting membership cost thing. I was having a conversation with Joe Sherry 
and the G on Twitter. And Joe happened to share a bunch of numbers for nominations in the fan category. Some of the numbers for the fan categories have like fallen in some cases. And more and more, I see the fan categories as a great place to like get started, to find a voice, to find your people. I don't think it's like accidental that John Scalzi, when he was nominated for in, in the best fan router category, that like he had this sort of rise in Hugo voting fandom because he came in the best fan running category. He was a Hugo voter. He saw places that could be improved. Like he was the one who started the Hugo Award packet with the material inside of it for everybody to read. He was one of the leaders on that initiative. Like the fan categories get kind of buried. And I think it's unfortunate because I think that the way that they're written, they allow for a lot of flexibility. Obviously, a few years ago, we the original quote unquote fanzines, PDFs and the paper fanzines and blogs had a little dust up about blogs being eligible. That was a really fun time. And we sort of saw it between like podcasts and booktube as if the fan cast was only ever for podcasts, which is false. And so because the fan categories are so versatile, they're written in a way that allows you to interpret what they mean and find a way to include more things. I think that the fan categories need to have like more participation in them, but I don't know how to accomplish it. And I get really frustrated about it. For me, part of it ties back to the conversation we were having about the price of supporting members. For things like BookTube, for things like podcasts, like there's so much stuff out there. It ties in both to the co- the conversation about the supporting membership and reaching out because like, for me, my perennial nomination, which never gets on the fan cast list, is Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. I think that it slots perfectly into the Hugos. It is a long-running podcast talking about explaining the X-Men. And Jay and Miles are a fantastic duo of hosts. And they do have ties to the larger SF community. But I think because of the way that the Hugos have kind of siloed themselves off, that there's just not that engagement between the people who listen to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men or the people who listen to Desi Geek Girls with Preeti Chibber and Swapna Krishna, that there could be this explosion of interest and nomination, but the barriers to entry right now are too high for the casual fan or for folks who would, I guess, would be like more on the casual spectrum of the Hugo fandom. The numbers this year were... Uh, fanzine had 271 votes, Fancast had 376 votes, Fan Rider had 365 votes, and Fan Artist had 221 votes. This is just nomination period. And this is why, for example, a few years ago, a bunch of fascists were able to like log roll the, the Hugo Awards because before we had like protections for slates it built into our nomination system. They, it was really easy because voting in the nomination seems like a very specific universe of people versus people who vote in the awards once the finalists are out, which it, which can overlap with the universe of nominating voters, but is not the same. They're like different universes of voters. And I want to find a way to move people who are in the I will vote on the finalists group into the I will vote for nominees group. <laughs> And I've tried that with my Hugo sheet, and I feel like I'm having some success, but I, I want more success now. I think there needs to be like a serious discussion at the business meeting about lowering supporting costs. Because here's the thing, too. I don't understand why it's so high. It feels like $50 is like this arbitrary number spent. Someone like me who has a good job can afford it, but it's a barrier to entry to folks who might be interested in getting involved, but are like, well, I can't afford it. They obviously don't want me here. Yeah, like $50, $50 is is not nothing at almost any level of income. You are choosing to spend a pretty significant portion of your you know, entertainment budget or whatever, say, okay, yes, this award, because really what are you getting the supporting membership for if you're not voting in the awards this is worth this much to me to get engaged with and then you get into sort of okay well yes but you get the packet and technically the value of works in the packet is more than $50 but if you're already kind of engaged in doing the nominations then you've quite possibly read a lot of those and, and own them or have taken them out of the library anyway and, and having it in a horribly formatted pdf isn't actually that valuable to you and I suspect that 
to a sizable portion of the community that is working as intended that it is supposed to be you know you are buying into some grand nebulous idea of worldcon the institution and the hugos is the institution that should be an outlay of money and and we want to keep the filthy casuals out yeah and and i think um it's a whole different conversation to have about the price of a virtual so a virtual discom membership what's going to be involved in the 75 dollars there which is pretty significantly over any of the other virtual conventions i've seen con zealand kept its prices basically at the same as an in-person con and i think one of their stated purposes of doing that in their their closing meeting was that well we don't we actually don't want it to be generally accessible we want it to be that people who are bought into worldcon go to this and i think it's a huge shame i'm obviously particularly invested in the fanzine category i just see i see so many blogs and newsletters and things that are doing really really great work in this category on the whole the nominees are far too white that's the case in a in most of the fan categories unfortunately I feel like when we when we have these conversations around this voting, especially for fanzine, to a lesser extent for fan cars, I think, we end up having a conversation about, oh, well, you know, is, is this media still relevant? If you don't understand the world of book blogging in 2021 and you're wondering if that exists, then, friends, I have some news for you. Like, this whole scene is, is really alive and well. It's just that you're shutting it potentially out of whatever reading you're doing or whatever you're engaging with that you're considering for Hugo consideration. Any conversation around Worldcon that is about fanzines always ends up being like, well, should they be online? Can a fanzine be online now? Did it, what's the internet? I went to. I made the terrible mistake of going to the the fanzine panel in Dublin in 2019, and um, it's just so strange to me. Like you're in a science fiction space, and you're asking if this digital thing being created using computer science is eligible. Renee, we don't have issue numbers, so can it really be a fanzine truly if it doesn't have an issue number? are questions that that some people spend a lot more time thinking about than they rightly should. I'm open to ideas of how to get more people involved. Okay, I'm done being like, more people get involved, do it. We're going to close the chapter on that because I will go on for it for three hours. The best series category, this is the first year where I I actively felt like, oh, hey, I can read and vote in that category. It's a super strong category this year. I admit that some of my fondness for it is that they are a bunch of women and then junk scalesy. If you followed me at any like for any time at Lady Business, you know that I used to do these like book rec lists, women, non-binary people, and junk scalesy. Hilariously, I've only read two books in the interdependency. I have not read the read the last book. I've read all the Murderbot Diaries and I'm catching up. I'm a, I think I'm two books behind on October Day. And the other series are new to me. But, like, I feel very happy about, like, the books I get to read for this category. I know that when Best Series was founded, it was meant to, like, award these extremely long-running series, like, seven, nine, eleven books. I think a good example is October Day. I think this award was intended to, like, especially to award these very long-running, intensely nuanced and complicated series. On the other, on the flip side, you have a, a series like The Dresden Files, which is not being, uh, like, honored. I mean, on one hand, you can look at how the voters are changing. Voters are getting more diverse. And so as the Hugo voters get diverse, some of the series that are long running, like The Dresden Files, for example, are getting shoved out of the category because they're misogynistic. As someone who re- has read The Dresden Files, they're incredibly misogynistic. And I think one of the other things is that... With the October Day books in particular, you can watch Shauna McGuire grow as an author. Like, there's value in going back and seeing what's been seeded and trying to identify that. Whereas with the Dresden Files, you don't get that. Also, Jim Butcher has just not grown as an author. Like, his books have the exact same feeling no matter what. Like, there's nothing new. He doesn't know how to write female characters or people of color. Like I said, as someone who has read the Dresden File books up, like I haven't read the last two books because I heard something happen to a character I liked. And I'm just like, nope, I think I'm done with the series now. I'm not even going to bother checking it out from the library. 
I don't get the sense that Jim Butcher respects his female characters at all, and it really shows up in how he writes them. The one thing I would say is kind of a surprise for me, given how big of an author he is, is I was a little surprised that Brandon Sanderson's big-ass book series was not nominated for Best Series, because of the Stormlight Archive. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't read Sanderson, but I know, like, that is a big series, and I have friends who, like, aren't in the Hugo fandom who like Sanderson a lot, and so for me, that was kind of a surprise that that wasn't nominated, but for the most part, I really like this list. Like, it's another really strong uh, slate of nominees. There was some grumbling amongst the Sander scene, if you will, the uh, the Sander fans, about the lack of Stormlight archives on here. Because it was, it was nominated two years ago, I think. It's since had one more novel, and these are absolute doorstoppers of, of novels for anyone who's not familiar with him, and then a novella. So it, it qualifies on word count, but it's sort of, it's only really had one really main release, which is, is one reason I can think why it might not be there. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what the category was intended to do and the fact that it's intended to be sort of recognizing series as work that is worth honoring, even when individual novels might not have made sort of the best novel lists, I guess, or where, you know, the the series as a whole is greater than the sum of its parts. On this list, there are three series. So The Interdependency, book one was up for the best novel. Lady Astronaut and The Murderbot Diaries are both former winners and also both represented in best novel this year. So that's three where where there is some overlap with best novel. But then the other three, uh, like the Dave Bird trilogy, is really, really big and it hasn't had a best novel nomination. And it's really great to see it here. I've actually only read the first one. That will change this year. And likewise for the Poppy War, that um, obviously Kwang was a um, Astounding Award winner last year, but the Poppy War and its sequels haven't made the best novel ballot. And it's a, a really good, well-respected, really impressive trilogy of novels. It's also extremely hard to read. But yeah, and then obviously October Day has been a, an on-off appearance in this category it is 50% where he is intended, and two of those three things are trilogies. So it, I don't think it detracts from the intention of the category that it is looking at shorter and more manageable and also, thank goodness, not horrendously misogynistic series. Selfishly, and I'm going about this completely the wrong way, um, I would quite like to see Foreigner by CJ Cherry on this ballot because I want an excuse to read it and I otherwise don't see how I'll read 20 books. But I appreciate that that would be a nightmare scenario for many people. So uh, maybe I'll just I'll just read the books myself without having to see them on the ballot first. Also, I get really confused about like the eligibility thing because it's a lot of numbers and I'm just like, my head hurts and I don't understand. The only thing I put in this category this year was The Murderbot Diaries and October Day. I put the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner. Uh, one, because I'm petty enough to put a completed YA series in best series and two, it was a very good uh, series finale, in my opinion. Now I wish I had put that in, in the best series because absolutely... I will say I'm going to be campaigning very hard next for next year's ballot for Sarah Coon's Heroin Complex series. I absolutely adore it. I had nominated it for this year, and it will be eligible because we're getting a new book this summer. For those who are complaining about how no long-running series get on the ballot, this will be book five, so a longer-running series. It is more urban fantasy and po- and non-epic fantasy, if that's what folks are complaining about. So I think it ticks off a lot of those boxes without being gross and misogynistic. Okay, on this ballot, what is something that is your favorite thing on the ballot that does not involve you and that you did not nominate? I would say um, one thing I'm looking forward to is on the astounding both uh, Simon Jimenez and A.K. Larkwood. I'm excited to read those for different reasons. Um, Larkwood, because I like so many folks in our circle of friends have talked about the unspoken name and how much they love the unspoken name. 
And then for Jimenez, this is a work that I hadn't really, like, I had seen it in the context of here are books by actual Latinx writers that you should be reading instead of American Dirt. So I had seen it in that context, but I hadn't really seen it in, like, the SFF speculative context. So I'm really excited to see what that book's about. Yeah, so for me, um, I did not watch any films at all last year and, and very few TV shows either. So I think for me, it's actually the entire Best Dramatic Presentation ballot, not least because actually this year I will have time because there's, there's eight months to actually watch some films. So yeah, super, super intrigued by Birds of Prey, even though Batman stuff is not usually my jam. It's so much fun. I'm excited for that. Um, I'm excited for The Old Guard because I know a couple of our friends are sort of in the fandom for that. It's always really interesting to see something and be like, what's going on here? And then also my rom-com summary soul is very excited about Palm Springs. So yeah, I'm very excited for that. Um, and then also for Simon Jimenez as well. I really need to read The Vanished Birds. I didn't predict it, but I figured that it would be nominated, and that is The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. And I was like, I'll have an excuse. Maybe I can trick my brain because I need to read it for voting and I can read it finally. I pre-ordered The City We Became, and I got it, like, I think two days after it came out from the, my indie that I ordered from now, after my bookstore was destroyed by a tornado. Thanks, weather. I stare at it every day on my shelf, and I was very excited to see it here because I am convinced that I can like trick my brain into like reading into reading it. This was the first year where when I nominated for the Hugos, a lot of things were blank. And I was like really trusting fandom to come through for me. So thanks, fandom. Do we have any final thoughts about the 2021 Hugo ballot? I would say overall, it is, I really like the works that are nominated. I do wish there was more diversity in some of the fan categories. I am really looking forward to reading some like a lot of the works that I haven't read before. And congratulations to the two of you for being nominated. It has it has its ups and downs. It is representative of a wide section of fandom, not my own exact personal opinion. So I don't love everything equally, but that's okay. That's all part of the awards. And I think, um, yeah, just shout out to the Hugo spreadsheet, especially for next year, because I think there are there are a lot of really good people in the fan categories, including the nominees this year, but also um, in terms of people who were who were maybe being overlooked for future years that would make that a more representative segment of people doing great work in this space. The Hugo sheet for next year, which is for things that are being released in 2021, is open and available. People have been adding stuff, not as fast as I would like, but I'm trying to be patient. It is on my list. Ada doesn't get to add anything for herself because I do that for her. (laughs) It's okay. I have a few other people that I rate almost as highly as I rate myself. The categories that I like really want people to like focus on, obviously the fan categories, but like specifically fan artists. Like I really feel like there are a lot of fans out there who are doing like really cute science fiction and fantasy art that aren't just being overlooked. And so I want us to get creative about like when we're thinking about people whose art we like, like where are they posting? And can you find a link to it to put in the spreadsheet? And that way we can show people like the breadth of science fiction and fantasy work that's out there. Um, the Hugo sheet will be linked in the show notes. I highly recommend that everybody go bookmark it. Even if you're not somebody who's going to get a supporting membership and nominate or vote in the Hugos, I still want your recommendations. When more people show the media and the art that's out there, the better our award gets, even if you don't plan to contribute, because the voters will see it in the spreadsheet and they will check it out and you will introduce people to stuff that you love, even if you're not a participant in the awards. The only requirement is that it fits in the category and the categories are defined in the spreadsheet itself. So you can always check. And even if you're not sure, you can list it anyway and the admin will come and fix it if it's not eligible. Space Bees, if you have Hugo opinions or thoughts that you would like to share with us, if you would like to tell us that we are wrong, so wrong, you can feel free to email us. That's cool too. We are interested in hearing your thoughts. We are Hugo nerds. Space Bees, thank you very much for listening to our show. Adri, where can people find you online? I am a co-editor at the fanzine Nerds of a Feather Flock Together, which is 
www.nerds-feather.com. You can also find me having opinions of various qualities at AdriJJY on Twitter. And Diana, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me mostly on Twitter at BookishDie. I also occasionally talk about books that I'm reading on YouTube. It's also BookishDie. Just be warned, if you try and like fight me about the Dresden Files, I will fight back because I, I have some very strong opinions about those books. Everybody be warned. Do not pick a fight with Diana about the Dresden Files. This episode was made possible by Finger Happy Hours, Space Bees, and the Patreon Hive. Thanks to all of you for continuing to stick with us during this extremely, extremely strange time. Our production is by me. Hello. Our art is by Ira, and our music is by Cheeky Beats and Boxcat Games. Our transcripts are by Susan, who is always ahead on the transcripts. It's still me that's behind, but we're trying to get better at it this year. 2021 is the year. You can find and read all Susan's transcripts at fangirlhappyhour.com. Thanks for listening to our show, Space Bees. See you next time, and remember to wash your hands, wear a mask, and take care of each other. Why do I have so many slacks is the question. How did this happen? <laughs> I'm in like 12 now. Oh, Renee, that is too many. Put some back. No. Is that a cat? That was a cat. Loki, listen. I don't have time for this. <laughs> Loki, why? You were being so good. You weren't even in here. That's how good you were being. You weren't in here. I have learned my lesson after the dinosaur lords. Oh, God. The dinosaur lords. It was really gross. There was, like, loving descriptions of breasts. Don't do it, Adri. Don't look it up. <laughs> I am looking at the cover, but I think I shall um, I shall let this one pass me by. Yeah, 3.05 rating on Goodreads. Listen, I was so excited about this. I was so excited about the series. It sounded super great. But maybe if it had been not written by a dude, it would have been good, but unfortunately, it was written by a dude. L- like the whale is like a representation of the love of the BTS and Army have for each other. So restock the plush whale. Restock it. What are you doing? Everybody has one good thing, right? Do I have one good thing? I have one good thing. I have a good thing. I think Adrian has the best thing. <laughs>